All right, here we are in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 to 30. Um, what an amazing passage. And man, I just sure hope that God will give me grace and help. So let me pray for that. Father, we are in the middle of this section of Romans 8. And um, I just, um, I'm thoroughly unworthy, Lord, to be able to touch it, open it up, explain it. So much of it I'm still learning as you're unfolding it in front of me. I need the help of your spirit to think clearly and communicate clearly. And we need the help of your spirit to listen to what you're saying. So much is just straightforward in the text today. But we do need the help of your spirit to um, push the straightforward things into the realities of our heart and where we don't think or believe this way. So Father, please, I pray for your help today. And we just thank you as we pray for that. We thank you for your assured help. We thank you for your love. In these passages, Father, um, your love for us is strong and specific and promised. And you are not resistant with your children. You do not hold out on us in any way, financially, spiritually, relationally, favor-wise. You are for us. So please, out of that being for us, help us today that we might be lifted up in your promises. In Christ's name, amen. So we are in Romans chapter 8, and uh, I would really encourage you to have a copy of that open on your phone or in hand. If you need a paper copy, we have some microfish versions back there. Joel's holding them up. You can barely see it. I can't see it at all now. I'm getting so old. Um, but we want you to have a copy of the scriptures right in front of you. You can see that, that I'm not saying this stuff and that God is saying this stuff. That literally, just let me break it down, the Holy Spirit is saying it through the pen of Paul. It's, this wasn't a, a, a glowing quill that came out of heaven and like, woo, Romans 8. Written by a human hand. Guy's name is Paul. Paul was a dirty, broken sinner. His name was Saul. He was persecuting God's people, killing them killing Christians. God stops him dead in his tracks, right near Damascus. It's on the news all the time. Real place on this earth. Stops him dead in his tracks. Not only convinces him he's wrong, but turns his heart. And what Paul went from being against Jesus Christ, the king of heaven and earth, to being for Jesus Christ, the king of heaven and earth, because Christ confronted him and graciously turned his heart from darkness to light, and then over the years started working through Paul and growing him and growing him and growing him through times of silence and solitude and with people and under discipleship of people and all that kind of stuff. And eventually Paul is a key leader in the church and Paul is a highly trained Jewish guy but is called to a ministry to particularly non-Jewish people called aka Gentiles or uh, Greeks sometimes in, in, in the book of Romans. And he's writing this letter to a bunch of Christians who live in Rome that he hasn't met, that he's excited are there, and are really mixed up with a lot of deep theological questions. And Paul, by the power of the Spirit, writes this icebreaker of a theological book called Romans to go charging across the ocean and land on the people of Rome, the church of Rome, to help them understand what's up in deep, deep ways. It's like Paul says, you really want to know how this works? The Spirit of God says, you really want to know this work? And the Spirit of God inspires through Paul the book of Romans. Okay, so that's where we're at. We've charged all the way up through chapter 8. Chapter 8 is like this beautiful island in the middle of Romans. Uh, some would call it the greatest chapter ever written. It's just loaded with stuff. Um, it's, one, it's one of those, in your concepts of Bible memory, and hopefully, remember, we'll quote a new verse next week. 
as a, as a church family. But remember, keep locking the verses down that we're go- doing so you don't stick it in your short-term memory and do what you do in college all the time, which is short-term memory and then blow it out the next week, which is what I did, why I can't remember the languages I studied and stuff like that. But to stick it in our long-term memory so we have God's word in our hearts. And if there's ever chapters to have be contenders for the long-term memory of scripture, John 15 is pretty amazing. Ephesians 2 is pretty amazing. Ephesians 1 is pretty amazing. But Romans 8 has got to be a contender. Romans 8 is just loaded, loaded with promises and a description. And it doesn't tell you to do a stinking thing in Romans 8. It's all about what God is doing to us and for us and in us. It's, it's amazing. So we're in Romans 8. And of all the Romans 8 verses, probably the most famous might very well be our verse today. Romans 8, 28. And... So far in this book, as we think through the last couple chapters, we kind of get this, this large argument saying, who do you need to please? Who do you need to follow? And in chapter six, he goes, you don't, you don't need to follow sin. Can't follow sin anymore. Romans chapter seven, he goes, and don't look for a written code. Don't try to find some light written code. Even the best of all written codes, the Old Testament. Don't, don't look to follow a written code. And then chapter 8, the beginning of it, and don't even look to your flesh, the natural desires. Like these are the things we look to to follow. As people who have been redeemed by Christ now, we look to the Spirit to follow. So God puts His Spirit in us, and we will attend to the leading of the Spirit. That's the new way of life. And He says we are indebted to do that. We are owned by God. This is the new way of life. This is the rightful way of life. He goes on in chapter 8 to say, and not only is it the rightful way of life, but this is the amazing thing that God's doing us, that God is going to pour out glories in us, right? We have this amazing future. He describes the spirit as the spirit of sonship who resides within us, testifying that we actually are, for reals, the sons and daughters of God. And that spirit of sonship that testifies that we are the sons and daughters of God, if he is there testifying in us, it's a good question, that testifies that we are not only sons and daughters, but we are fully sons and daughters, which means we are heirs of God, heirs with Christ. And so towards the end of the beginning of this chapter, there's this split saying like, this is our future. This is our new birthright. We are heirs with God. We have inheritance. We are part of his family, part of the royal family with all the trappings that come with it. But right towards the beginning of this book around verse 10, it says, but we don't get to live in all the pleasures of that yet. And he splits our lives in two streams, the here and now and the one to come. And the one to come saying, look, listen, I don't count the sufferings of this present world worthy to be compared of the glories that shall be revealed in us, in you. What, no matter what you suffer here on the low, doesn't even, doesn't even come close to imagining all that he blesses us, blesses us in then as we enjoy our full airship. But then he goes on to say, but, but here's how God helps us in the here and the now. The here and the now is a life of investment. The here and the life for the Christian now is a life of us investing in the, the life he's called us to, the mission that he's called us to. And his words of description are that it's a life of suffering. We do suffer for him. As we come as part of him, as light into the darkness, the darkness doesn't like it. We encounter suffering. So he gives us tools in chapter 8 to know how to handle that. He doesn't say, it's a life of suffering. I'll see you when you get home. If that was the case, it would end very short in chapter eight. But most of chapter eight, the last two thirds of it really is the unfolding of what he calls us to think and know and to place confidence in. And his term for that is hope. 
English, we talked about this. English, when you hit the word hope, it usually means a highly unlikely wish. That's what English hope is. That is not what biblical hope is. Biblical hope is a full-on assured future reality. Waiting for the full-on assured, like this is coming. So it's the exact opposite of what we mean in English. So when you say hope, when you read hope, make a new word up. Because it's not what you're thinking as a good old-fashioned English speaker. Even a second wave English speaker. English is your second language. You're probably still not getting biblical hope. Biblical hope is rock solid confidence, a full expectation. Like dropping a pen and expecting to hit the ground. This is what I rest in. And so, so much of Romans 8 is saying this is what you can rest in. Andrew hit us last week with the passage that talks about help number one is he gives us his spirit. His spirit helps us because in our weakness, we don't know what to pray for. We don't have the mind of God yet. We don't know all the rights, ins, and outs of these things, and so we want to pray because we have connection with the Father, the God who rules all things. He listens to us and hears what we think, and we are his sons and daughters, so we have full access to it. We just don't know what to pray, so he puts the Spirit in us, and the Spirit intercedes and moves and guides us and leads us forward into things to pray. That's why, like with this church building thing, we don't know the mind of the Lord. We can't tell you it's the will of God that we move, stay, or meet in the park for the rest of our church life. We don't know the outworking of those things. So we do appeal to the Spirit. We appeal to the intercessory work of the Spirit because that is an incredible help that the Spirit intercedes for us as we pray. The second wave of help is what he does in us. Romans eight twenty-eight. It says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, the observant eye might slightly recognize this is the verse we all quoted last week and memorized for the last two weeks. Um, this verse here, it's got to be in your arsenal. It's just got to be. Um, if you think it shouldn't be, l- let's talk. I just can't think of many, many verses. If I decided to give you 10 verses... Let's say your, your memory is very, very small, unusually small, goldfish size. And we only had 10 slots. This is going to be one of them. It's got to be in there, right? So our passage today, can you guys hit me at the slides up there? Because um, my thing's still not working here. The Father's comprehensive promise. Our first piece of this is God is using all the elements. God is using all the elements. Look again, Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So I just want to go phrase by phrase to that in a very simple way and for you to think about this and see if you actually believe this. Because every week, I'm tempted to not believe this. Every week, every day, I wake up usually not believing and I have to re-believe it again. Remember it and re-believe it. So here we go. And we know. And we know. It's our first words, right? I could make us quote this every time, but I'm not going to, Okay. And we know, so the first piece is this. This is assured information. This is God communicating it to us and for us to have this process. So he says, and we know, therefore. And we know through study and through listening. Oh, by the way, that's why study week coming up, um, why we, we, we do that. Um, we can't be like choo-choo discipleship. You know, you're like, open up, choo-choo-choo-choo-choo. And like feed us good stuff. Like, like we want to be disciples who grow in the Lord. So for instance, like right now, if I asked you, hey, give me the top three passages of the New Testament on human sexuality. If you can't do that, or you can't pull that out of your phone very quickly, not on a Google search, but out of your own stuff, you should probably think about being in the sexuality study. Or maybe one of the others, because, because you're carrying the message of Jesus, right? So we're not just simply going, I think I know what he says. We want you to know what he says. That's why we do these synthesized studies. So just a note, we know these things. We don't simply 
We aren't, like this passage here, we're not just aware that he says this. We know these things. And we know for those who love God. So this promise here is not a worldwide promise. When we speak of the love of God, one of the things I think that we as Christians really kind of mess things up on is talking about the love of God too quickly. Telling the world like, oh man, God is love and he loves you and he's, he's all for. God has intense, vivid, vibrant, permanent love. But that love is for a specific grouping of people. The love that Christ is advertising through the New Testament isn't just a generalized love over the entire human race. He is pouring out his love on the sons and daughters of the Father, on Christ in his words. Now, his new brothers and sisters. It is promised, it is covenanted. He made this thing called marriage to partially describe this. See, when you're married, you're not married to everyone on the planet, you're married to somebody. There's covenanted love that goes there, but this love of God is a covenanted love. In this passage here, the promise here is a promise that is not for the world. So the promise as you see it, you may have opportunities where you think, oh, I can apply this this week and share this with somebody. But I would tell you, you gotta be be careful. Who are you sharing this promise to? Because if you're sharing a promise that's made to me, but you're giving it to Heather, that's not a fair thing for her because the promise is intended for me. If the promise was that I would be given money and you can say, hey, Heather, there's promise you have money, but the promise is me, that promise doesn't matter. This promise is a promise from God, but it is specifically to those who love God. The phrase, those who love God. Um, in some of our kids stuff, we just training and we help them think through like, what are the two types of humans? There's God lovers and self lovers. The gospel itself changes us from self lovers to God lovers. So this promise here is a category of people. This is not a time a moment in time. It's not as if Rachel is, well, she's loving God right now, so the promise works for her. Well, she's not loving God right now, so this promise doesn't work for her. If she is a lover of God, a person who's been transformed through the work of Jesus, a person who is in darkness, who says, God, I don't want to be in darkness. I want to now belong to you forever and arrest the work of Jesus. God immediately does his work in her. She becomes a lover of God. And that becomes the ever-increasing reality of her earthly life. It says she loves him more and more and more and more. And it is a process over the duration of your life as you go along, right? Become a lover of God. So the promise is, number one, we know that for those who love God, those who have been transformed by God himself, all things worked together. So literally, little two things here, all things, not some things, yea, verily, a wee handful of things, but all things are in scope here. Every pain, every temptation, every sin, Every hurricane, every loss, every tear, every single thing is in play here. Every single thing you encounter as a Christian, as a person that knows God, is being brought underneath the promise. And the promise is the following words, are being worked together for good. Literally, literally, he works together for good. So it's not that all these little sequential things of like, oh, you know, like I got some suffering and they're all going to swirl about and like form something good in my life. No, no. God is saying, I am here. I see it all. And I have my finger on the back of every single thing, good and unfortunate and painful in your life. And I am weaving and I am working every single thing for the believer together. Next word, 
for good. So if the God of heaven says that the end product of what I'm weaving and working together is good, is there a better good to consider? Do you have one? Right? Or is really is what God doing saying like, listen, I am doing something miraculous in your life. On this life that you live down here, this is unlike this amazing life you live with me as you're glorified. While you go through this life in the weakness of being a human and in the weakness of being subjected under all kinds of forces and difficulties and pains and sufferings, I am sovereign and I am good in your life. And I am moving all of these things together for good. Your good. But not just good, your good, because the verse ends that way. For those who are called according to the purpose. For those who are called according to the purpose. The final line of that passage says, according to literally the purpose. His purpose, the purpose. This is a mistake. He's got a plan. He's sovereign in this. And he's moving these things. And interwoven are two things. Your good and his purpose. So as he moves these things together, for your good, it is for his purpose. And his purpose is your good. God is making an incredible revelation to us that he is there, he is aware, he's in full action, he's in full power, and he has a plan and he has a purpose and he's doing it. And that purpose includes the absolute best for you. But that absolute best is not for now. That absolute best is for then. And we'll get many, many foretastes of that sweetness of God's love here. Tons. I mean, we are rolling in it. And some of us have really rolled in the sufferings. Way more than I ever have. Our good that he's pointing towards is an eternal good. But it's also good that's happening. He'll show up in the next verse. He's doing really a good thing for you. Now, one thing I want to mention out to this is when we mention that all things are working together, um, one thing we'd be careful in this when we talk about God's sovereignty is that God is not the author of sin. He is, he is over it. He will work all things together, but he's not the author of sin. In James 1.13, he says, Let no one say that when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God himself cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Likewise, in 1 John 1.5 says, This is the message that we have heard from him, and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. So God is not the author of evil, the pain, the tears, the suffering, the sin in your life. He's not the author of these things. But he says completely and clearly that he is working all those things together. He is carefully, personally involved in our life in every last detail. Which we don't know or believe very well, right? We, 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 we spin off into worlds of panic, spin off into worlds of anxiety, spin off in worlds of anger when people foil our ways or bring things under threat. When we think that we're not going to survive and our safety is compromised, we cower down and we hunker and we disappear. We do all kinds of different things. But brothers and sisters, the first piece of this passage today is this amazing promise. The Father, who is the God of heaven, for you as a believer in Jesus Christ, as a believer in Jesus Christ, his promise is every single thing that you encounter in your life, I have my finger on the back of it and I'm working that together for something that's not just acceptable, but is something that is really, really good. It is 
the best, and I'm weaving it together. And you may or may not taste that on this side of life or death. But this is his promise. The same one who promised to forgive you promises that he's working all these things together for good. Which if we believe that, then allows us the opportunity to rest in that and to not flail around and panic. That's why he's telling us. This is actually part of his provision. His provision is not only putting his spirit in us, but it's letting us know what he's doing. That all the details are captured. All the details are being worked together. Um, you, in his purpose, aren't just a side benefit of it. You know, oh, I'm just going to pick up Chris along the way. I'll just throw him in the bucket. You know, I mean, I'll take care of him like... Throw him some food, you know, just keep going. Like, really, we are brought into that purpose. We, his good for us is part of his purpose and his plan. And for us all, it's right here in Columbus. It's right here in Columbus. The things you, unless you're a visitor out of town, if you are, God bless you, or online, like wherever you're at. But for most of us, we're sitting here firmly in the south end of Columbus. And he's placed us there. And this context for us is here, right here, right now. And within the next 24 hours, you will encounter thousands of elements. Some of them extra happy elements, some of them hard elements. And God's promises for you is, I will sustain you, I will take care of you there because you are in my purpose and my purpose is for you and my purpose is you in the place where you're at, where I will sustain you and you can keep your eye on looking to me and the mission that I have given you. You're not in the cabinet. You're not in the package. You're not to be deployed someday. You're there right now. He's using us. This life right now is an, an investment life. It's not survival. It's right here, right now, playing a critical role in the purpose that he has. Um, for clarity, I listened to kind of a cool song this week on my Spotify playlist. Um, you might recognize a couple versions of it. Um, well, there's a couple things. You, you know, there's there's the idea of just don't, just a, uh, I didn't listen to this one, Don't Worry, Be Happy. It's an old one, okay? But the one that came across my playlist this week was Don't Worry About a Thing Because Every Little Thing is Going to Be All Right. That's not what God's saying. God's saying something better. He's like, yeah, don't worry, don't live in anxiety, but everything is going to be absolutely best. I'm constructing something magnificent and wonderful and glorious with all these elements in your life. Nothing you face is wasted. Not one tear, not one pain, not one ounce of suffering that you ever encounter in your life. Nothing ever wasted. So therefore, in verse 24, remember he said this life of hope? He said this is, therefore we live in hope, we live in patience. How do we live in patience? Remember Use the tool he gave us, which is, remember the promise that he gave and what he's doing in us. Though we, uh, though we Christians, sons and daughters, are not home yet, not glorified, we need to know and, and rest that God is personally and actively working and weaving all of the occasions of our life together for good, real and incomparable good for us. Every part of our life is being used for our good, ultimately. Our second piece is in verse 29. God is completing the whole work God has completed the whole work. Take a look at 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he also called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So welcome to a portion we classically call the golden chain, right? In verse 28, God says, I'm working all the details, all of these elements, all these things together. Verse 29 to 30, 
we get it a little bit broader. God is completing the whole work. And so there's this chain of, a uh, sequence of things that happen to us. God being the actor, God doing something, some of them extremely past tense, some of them future tense. And he's bundling them together. Let's take a look at these terms here. Number one, and we'll get more of the details in the weeks to come because we're already to exit uh, Romans 8 into Romans 9. So we have lots of time to kind of soak in the details of calling and predestination, election and sovereignty and all those good and easy topics to consider. Uh, those are all coming around the corner. But for today, we're going to keep the main point of us. The main argument is in, thir- in 28, God is all, all the amazing small details. In 29 and 30, he's in all the large package. So number one, God's got you. Foreknew. What is foreknew? It means he knew before, but not just simply aware, but in scriptures, when God knows somebody, uh, it's a sense of covenant love. It's intimate love. So God knew you before, loved you before the foundations of the world. So the, the target of this, remember, is those that love God, those who are called according to his purpose. For comes this. This is the chain of things that everyone who knows Jesus Christ genuinely knows Jesus Christ. So let's just say right now, you're like, I don't know about this. But let's say halfway through the sermon, the next 10 minutes, you're like, I want in. And you very quietly there in your perforated chair say, God, I, I'm done. I'm done running away from you. I want to submit my life to you. Rest in the work of Jesus. At that moment, he promises, he justifies you. At that moment, he gives you, I'm telling you, then all of 28 comes alive to you. And I'm telling you that everything that happens in 29 and 30 is secure for you. Though you just came to know him, he says, I foreknew you before the foundations of the world. I knew your name and I loved you there. Second word, predestined, means he preassigned you. Third one, called, effectively summoned you out of darkness to sin. And so what happens is that moment when you're sitting in that chair and you hear the gospel or you're taking your shower or your walk or you're brokenhearted in the woods or wherever it's at, that moment you come to Christ, he's effectively called you out of darkness into his marvelous light and he's done something called justified you. He's made you righteous legally. He's made you righteous legally. And the final term, which is something that happens in the end, is that he glorifies you. He brings you up into a wondrous nature and position. This one being in the future, but it is sure. All of these things are all sure. They're all stated as in past tense, right? He foreknew you, predestined you, called you, justified you, glorified you. Because God's promise is, if I touch you, I do not let go of you. If I start a work in you, I will complete every work that I start in you. So how do we live in this life down here knowing that he says I have a future coming? He goes, let me give you a couple tools. Number one, I'm gonna give you my spirit. He's gonna testify to your heart. He's gonna help you in prayer. But number two, let me tell you exactly what I'm doing towards you. Let me tell you about my perspective towards you. I am intimately and completely pervasively involved in all the details of your life. Not a piece of it slipping my, de- my, my grasp, but I'm working things together. And then let me tell you, if you are my child, let me tell you, that it's as good as done. I've known you before I made this world all the way through to I will be with you in eternity. I will glorify you. All these things are yours and they're secure in him. What he touches, he holds. He never does simply apart and then discards us on the side of the road as some kind of broken stereotype. It's good news. And it's good news because did you guys see what you did in verse, in verse 28? Did you see what we did? Nothing. Did you see what we did in verse 29? No, it's nothing there either. See what we did in verse 30? No, still not doing, we're not doing anything. The good news is God is doing something. And while you're jacked up and weak, and only half as jacked up and weak as I am, 
God is not. And his hand is not broken. And he's good. And he's so wise. He doesn't make an error. He never snoozes, never falls asleep at the wheel, never gives up on your sorry case and my sorry case. He knows what it is. He knows how much more of a sorry case than it ever was. And he speaks to all of our sorry cases and says, look at my secure and powerful love. Rest in it. Rest in it. If you have good reason to rest in it. So let me just talk about this good reason for a second. God tells us to make our call and our election sure. What does that mean? There is a huge problem of self-deceit in our hearts. Huge problem of self-deceit in our hearts. And um, I, I think my kids' words from this growing up is you have to really, 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 really mean it, right? What does it mean for you to really cast yourself at the foot of Christ? Wholeheartedly and not self-deceive because, man, it's really easy to go, hey, those are some good deals right there. Kind of like it. I can kind of like weave that into my American dream or my Swedish dream or whatever type of dream you have. And, um, and I can have the best of both worlds. I can have my here now life, my awesome life in the future. Have you genuinely, this is a true question. Have you and how do you know that you genuinely knelt at the foot of the cross and gave your soul to God and asked Jesus to save you? Have you had that explicit conversation with him? As a kid, as an adult, I don't care when it is, but have you actually done that? And then if you've done that, he will tell us there are signs that we've done it. It's called growth. Sanctification is a big word, right? We will look more and more and more and more like Jesus. Oh, and it'll be a bumpy road. You're going to crash and burn. Boom, you're going to fall into sin and temptation. Boom, anxiety. Boom, anger. Boom, being a lousy mom and dad. Boom, boom, all the way through. But his grace, his spirit brings us to repentance, Brings repentance and the fact that we don't hide it. We're like, absolutely, I still wrestle with sin. Jesus, I first remember my position with you. You've told me to address him as father, not as once father, now unadopted. You know, the adopted, loved father. I address you as father. I rest in that love and I repent for my sin and walk on with you. So is there good reason to have confidence for you in this passage? Because God says the confidence here. He says, look at this, know this, bank on this, count on this. But there is a good question is, should you be counting on it? And that can be hard. And it, it is hard. Actually, for every believer I know, every believer I really know, we've all had a hard time thinking through that. If a person doesn't have a hard time thinking through that, I kind of wonder if that's a sign maybe you don't know the Lord in the first place. Because the more you read about and know the Lord, the more the difference between who God is and who you are becomes apparent. And the more, the more it becomes amazingly like, how can it be, if this who he is, how can that be true of me? Because I am so messed up. So I'm not trying to get you to say, hey, all of you guys should, you're in trouble if you don't ever doubt your salvation. But I'm saying it's a very normal thing to inquire about your salvation. It's a very real thing to be able to look and see, is there just cause for me to say that I see the work of the Spirit of God in my life? And what does that work of the Spirit of God look like? It looks like verse 29. Verse 29 has these words. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The thing that he does that demonstrates the fact that we actually are one of these children and that we can rest on that is this conformity into the image of his son. And that starts in this life here. It's finished when we cross the line. But you are actively changed to look more and more like Jesus. Um, our world has some really dumb things to say. We always have. We just change the, the lines, right? But our world loves to say, hey, just, just, just be who you are. 
Just be who you are. Just you, just be you. Let you be you. Um, that's not what God has invited you to do. You don't want you to be you anymore. You want you to be Christ. That's what you want. You're being, if, if, if being foreknown and called and justified and glorified sounds good, then being conformed to Christ has to sound good. If being conformed to Christ doesn't sound good, then why would those other things sound good? It's actually what he's doing in us. He's making us look more and more and more and more like Jesus and less and less like ourselves. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. He's the first prototype. He's what we will look like. Not physically, but in the nature of our hearts and our thinking and our character. What was Christ like? Well, here's a few things. Just taking, just taking a small gander back down to the pages of the Gospels, right? Uh, a few things. Number one, he's full of grace and truth. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. He's perfect in his love, right? Love one another as I've loved you. Sinless, tempted in every way, yet without sin, forgiving. I mean, the cross. I mean, coming back into the room after the cross, peace be with you. You bunch of backstabbing cowards. No, no, no. Peace be with you. For so forgiving, tender, tender with children, tender with the suffering, tender with the sick, tender with the backstabbers, tender with his mother at the cross, tender with the hungry. A bunch of people, they're listening to him eat, to teach, and his heart is broken for them because they're, they're hungry. Sacrificial, serving, I came not to be served, but to serve and to lay my life down. Humble. Suffering like a lamb to the slaughter, yet without a word. Big picture transfixed, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Prayerful, he went out to a desolate place as was his custom. Word filled and word speaking and word trusting, only doing what the fathers told him to do. Does that look good to you? Does that look good to you? Is that home? Is that who he's making you to be? Are you willing to let go of the old you to look more like this as you are conformed into his image? Because that is the sign that God is doing his work in you. That is the sign that you have been justified. That is the sign that you've been called. That is the sign that you've been predestined and foreknown. That is the sign you will be glorified. God wants you to have deep confidence that he will do all those things to you and therefore rest in confident hope if you want it in the first place. So two things. Um, Fellowship-wise, pastorally here, if you have questions about, is my faith real? Um, let's talk to each other. We have our MCs. We'll be family there in our DNA groups. Um, come talk to any of the pastors, pastors' wives, anybody. Let's talk about it. Let's be real with it. Um, I would probably tell you for sure, I think I've had this conversation with like everyone on our pastoral team, like we've all gone through seasons of like, am I the Lord's? Is it possible as, as messed up as I am, am I the Lord's? And we believe that, yes, we are. Otherwise, we wouldn't be pastors or we'd make them not pastors, those kind of things. So, like, come talk to us. Let's work that stuff through. Think it through. But brothers and sisters, this is the trajectory. Have you yielded your life to say, God, make me Christ-like? Conform me. Conform me to the image of Jesus. So, very effectively, I might be one of the brothers and sisters of Jesus on this world. 2 Corinthians 3.18, amazing passage. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the, of the Lord are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who's the Spirit. 
Woo, all the parts we've been talking about, right? And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Remember, we know, not we heard, but we know because we read in the scripture, we're beholding the glory of the Lord, being transformed, and we beheld that reading Jesus in the gospels, all those things I just read, being transformed into the same image, into his exact same character, into all those, it's what makes him beautiful. Jesus wasn't a looker, right? It tells us he was homely. What was beautiful about Jesus was not his stature, his skin tone, or how he looked, or the beard. It's who he was, his character, his nature. That was what was beautiful. That's what was glorious. We're being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. So incrementally, more and more and more and more and more. And we're comfortable with more and more and more. And we're comfortable with that happening to each other. Like I have to be comfortable with that incremental transformation in Alex's life. And he has to be comfortable with that incremental transformation in my life. And we have to expect it. In fact, if we don't see that incremental transformation, then something's wrong. Why are you stalling out? Why are you running away? Why all of a sudden you feel like you don't need to be transformed anymore? Like this is the ongoing transformation as he moves us from glory to glory to glory to glory to glory. And then when we go to see him face to face, massive glorification. So fellowship becomes the expectation of weakness revealed, repented from, and grown into the image of Jesus. But doesn't that take some humility? And doesn't that take some patience with each other? It's really sweet. So let me finish out with this, this statement here. You are, if a true Christian, being transformed into Christ's image. And you are, if a true Christian, called by God himself to know that he is working every single thing in your life together for good, which is his purpose and your genuine good. And not only is he working every single element of your life he is telling you that he will do the incomplete and comprehensive thing. That which he began, he will finish. He wants you as his very loved son and daughter to rest there knowing that he will not take his hand off of you. In the weeks to come, you're going to see some other reasons why you think he should take his hand off you. But he says, I will not take my hand off you. I will complete what I have begun. Know this and rest this in your heart and let this be fuel for you as you go on in life down here a life that is hard and unlike the life that we will have with him eternally. Would you guys please stand with me as we close in prayer and begin to our time of worship through the Lord in song. And as we sing the song, we'll celebrate communion. Jesus died for us because we needed a death to pay for our sins. So we celebrate communion in the back in some circles. We'll sing one or two songs. I think it's one song today. Two songs. Two songs. And over the time, just take some time, filter back into these circles where we celebrate the death of Jesus. If you know him, if you don't know him, take a pass. This is something special to Jesus. But if you know him and I, we don't know you, it's okay. We know Jesus. You know Jesus. So come celebrate union in Christ. So Father, I pray that you'd please be with us. Um, let us contend with the astounding claims and promises, Romans eight twenty eight, that every detail you're working together, every detail you're working together, nothing is lost. Father, let it also be knit to our hearts, Lord, that what you begin, you always finish. And that it is a good thing, and it is a beautiful thing to be actively conformed into the image of Jesus. So please, even as we sing these songs of praise to you, let confidence be in our hearts towards you. Let the joy and the treasure being transformed into the image of Jesus be true in our hearts. Be with us as we think about what you've done for us on the cross, Jesus. 
We love you, and we thank you that you are the hero of the gospel because we clearly are not. So let us trust your promises. In Christ's name we pray, amen.